Father, we thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Help us to hear your voice. Encourage us. This morning we pray. Amen. Breaking with tradition is not always easy to do. You probably don't need me to tell you that. On Christmas Eve, there are probably a few family traditions that you would be quite happy to say goodbye to this year. But to give you an example of this, a Brazilian mother thought it was a lovely thing when her husband, Walter, asked her if they could name their first child after him. It was with great joy that they named their daughter, Walter Lucia. And Walter Sr. was so delighted to have a child named after him that he apparently asked for their next child to be named after him, and the next, and the next, until they ended up with, according to the Daily Mirror, 15 children and now 33 grandchildren and counting, all named after Walter. Walter Livia, Walter Lenia, Walter Lonia, Walter Lucia, the list goes on. Breaking with tradition is not always easy to do, especially when it comes to naming children. And so it is, you spotted the link already maybe, that we meet Zachariah and Elizabeth, the lesser known but just as surprising new parents of Luke chapter 1, whose story we actually learn before we learn Mary's. And flip back with me to, and before the passage we read, to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Um, And we meet here, in verses 6 and 7, childless and righteous priest Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, They are promised a son by a heavenly warrior of light in verse 13, uh, but one condition, they have to call their child John. Um, Zechariah, in verse 18, doubts, uh, clearly had forgotten what Dan was teaching us last week of Mary's song, of the stories of Mary herself, Hannah, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel in the Old Testament. And so verse 20, Gabriel closed Zechariah's mouth. A mysterious bump appeared in the belly of his retired wife, verse 24. And then in verse 26, uh, the scene cuts to the more familiar story of Elizabeth's young relative Mary, who responded more faithfully to her visit from her heavenly warrior of light in verse 38. And then flicking over the page in my Bible, um, we don't meet Zachariah again until the circumcision ceremony eight days after his miracle baby had been born, in verse 59. The elderly new mother, Elizabeth, perhaps with her head mushed by baby brain, suggests the rather unusual and contemporary name of John for her child, verse 60. Everybody points out that this is ridiculous, that there are traditions to uphold, that he needs to be called Zachariah like his dad, verse 61. However, Zachariah, still silent, nine months later, writes out on his tablet of the stone variety, no, he's to be called John. And just like that, Zechariah's tongue is set free, and verse 64, he began to speak, praising God. Breaking with tradition may not be easy, but when God intervenes and grants you a baby as you're starting to draw your pension suddenly the old traditions may not seem so important. And there is quite the reaction to what happens here. Verse 65, all the neighbours were filled with awe 
and throughout the hill country of Judea. People were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard about this wondered, asking, what then is this child going to be? For they could see the Lord's hand was with him. And so Zechariah answers, partly simply praising God in song for what God has done for him, and partly prophesying and answering that question, what then is this child going to be? And we'll consider the song in, in three parts. First, with Zechariah, let us praise the God who sent salvation. Verses 68 down to 71. Let us praise the God who sent salvation. Look down with me at verse 68. And there is no ambiguity with Zechariah's first line, with his first word, what kind of song he is here composing. It is a song of praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? Two reasons. Because God has come to his people in Jesus and because God has redeemed his people in Jesus. So first, Zechariah praises the God who in Jesus has come to his people. Do you remember as a child, perhaps at this time of year, when you were excited for a visitor to arrive at your home and you would literally sit in the bay window and just look out the window, watching the corner, waiting for their car to arrive? Well, that is what God's people had been doing for years, waiting, watching for God to come, for him to send another prophet, for him to fill the temple that they had rebuilt post-exile. But God hadn't come. Though it had been hundreds of years, there had been no word from God and no sign of God. God had not come. And perhaps some of them had almost given up waiting. What would be the point in opening a door on the Advent calendar each day if Christmas Day wasn't going to come at the end? But now, says Zechariah in verse 68, God has come to his people. In that tiny infant, the little not yet born Jesus growing almost in secret in Mary's womb, just a few members of this one little family in the know, God has come. Zechariah can't quite get over it. And God will come again when Jesus returns. The surprise, the joy, the bewilderment of Zechariah here, that God had come in person to his people in Jesus after all this time will one day be our surprise, joy, bewilderment. For Jesus will come again. And not in weakness this time, but in glory. Not to fulfill part of God's plan this time, but to fulfill all of it. Jesus will come again. Feel the anticipation as we read this song. Zachariah's surprise and joy will one day be ours. We too will see our Saviour come.
So Zechariah praises the God who in Jesus has come to his people, and he praises the God who in Jesus has redeemed his people. I'm hoping I might be doing some redeeming later this week, maybe a next gift card, maybe water stains, maybe TK Maxx. Um, I might find a gift card, I imagine, nestled under the Christmas tree that I can take down to the sales and redeem. But that kind of redeeming would be far from what Zachariah would have had in mind when he penned these words. He probably had something more like uh, Nazanin Zakari Ratcliffe's story in mind. The Iranian-British citizen detained in Iran in 2016 for apparently plotting to topple the government, finally freed last year after the apparently unrelated payment of 400 million uh, from our government to Iran's government. Imagine what the concept of redemption must feel like for Zagami Ratcliffe, having been brought back from her captors. Well, this is what God has done for us in Jesus. He has redeemed us. He has brought us back. He has paid bail for us to buy our freedom. How has he done this? Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And this idea of a horn of salvation might feel a little obscure, but for horn, just think strength. Think the horn of the mighty ox, the powerful bull, goring their prey, defeating their rivals. A picture of flexed biceps would perhaps have the same symbolic meaning for us. In raising up, in giving us Jesus, God has raised up a bicep of salvation. Why? Verse 71, to bring us salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74 picks up the same theme, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. And I don't think we're to think Zechariah is being super spiritual here. But he's only talking about the spiritual world, about the enemies within. As Charlie was teaching us a few weeks ago, as we looked at Mary's song, Israel had enemies. They still do. The relationship between the ancient Jewish people and the modern nation state of Israel is not straightforward. But the Jews, at the time Zechariah was singing this song, were and had for centuries been a downtrodden and oppressed vassal people. They had enemies. And I'm sure that Zechariah longed for personal salvation for each member of the Jewish people. But I think his prayer, his understanding of God's salvation, goes bigger. I think Zechariah sees that in Jesus, God has brought a salvation that is public and political not just personal and private, though it's certainly not any less than that. Somehow, Zachariah sees and sings, this little baby in Mary's womb will deal with everything that is wrong with the world. And so Zachariah praises the God who in Jesus has sent salvation. But maybe you're not yet a Christian, And it's the smallness as you see it, the introspection, the self-concern that you can't quite get over. 
There's a world out there in such pain. There's such poverty, injustice, cruelty. If the Christians care so much, where are they? God's people may not always serve him as they should. But rest assured that the God of the Bible cares about the suffering. In Jesus, he has shown us that he cares. Just think about how Jesus loved the people that polite society hated. And in Jesus, God has not just brought us a salvation which exists on a spiritual plane. He certainly has done that. But he has brought salvation in its entirety for every suffering, from every sin, from every wickedness and consequence of wickedness. He has promised to transform me, you, the world, in part now, and in his second coming, completely. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that? All you need to do, the Bible says, is come to Jesus and believe, for he has come to us. Maybe you're already a Christian, and you too long for this salvation with a capital S, for a salvation that that isn't less but is perhaps more than just a private feeling and experience. How, you think, can the church, can Christians be so caught up in their own struggles and so blind to the problems of the people out there in the world? How can you carry on in the situation you find yourself facing, suffering the consequences of your own and other people's sin, struggling to live for Christ in a world that hates him and threatens to take away your reputation, your career, maybe even your freedom? Rest assured that the God of the Bible cares about the suffering. And that means that he cares about you in your suffering. He has sent first Jesus and now his spirit to help you. In Jesus, God does not offer us the gospel as a bitter tablet to swallow and then plow on, dealing with the side effects on our own. In Jesus, God does not deal with our soul and then leave us to sort out the rest. Jesus is the good shepherd who carries his injured lambs close to his heart. Jesus is the suffering servant who does not break the bruised reed. Jesus cares about you and he cares about what you are suffering. And he will save you from your enemies. I can't promise when, I can't promise how, but we can be certain that he will. So first, with Zechariah, praise the God who sent salvation. Second, looking at verses 72 to 75, serve the God who did what he said. Serve the God who did what he said. Um, As Zechariah continues his song, the emphasis shifts, I think, um, onto the context of God's rescuing bicep of salvation and the purpose. So first, the context. um, Look down with me at verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said to his holy prophets of long ago, verse 72, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant 
and the oath he swore to our father Abraham. As Dan showed us that Mary did in her song, so Zechariah zooms right out to see God's action for him in the here and now as part of a much bigger picture. For this horn is in a house, verse 69, the house of David. And he is the answer to an oath, verse 73, a promise made to Abraham. He's in response to a covenant, verse 72, a commitment made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he's the fulfillment of the words of the holy prophets, verse 70. This saviour did not come out of the blue. He came in context. He's part of something bigger, a meta story that God has been crafting since humanity began. And Jesus' arrival at this moment in history was just as God had said. God's choice of the family of ordinary priest Zachariah to be the ones through whom the Savior would come, that was a surprise. But the fact that God sent his bicep of salvation was no surprise at all. Jesus' arrival was just as God had said. Maybe that's what Zachariah had come to realize in his nine months of silence. It was not a question of if God would come and save, but only when and how. And we as believers know that Jesus' second arrival will be just as God has said. For the God who does what he says has promised it. And that can be such a strength to us when we're tempted to doubt, when we're tempted to listen to the story our culture tells us, when it laughs in our faces at the suggestion that there's a God at all, let alone one who will end the world with his arrival. Or when it laughs at the idea that anything other than climate change or nuclear war could bring this world to its knees. We can remember that we have a God who does what he says, despite all appearances to the opposite. He has sent Jesus once, and he will send Jesus again. And he will not just do what he says in the sense of Jesus' return, but all the other promises God makes to us. If Jesus says that death, the final enemy, will be defeated, then we really will see death running from the room, humiliated and stripped of its power. If Jesus says all tears and pains will cease, then our tear ducts really will close up unless we still need them for laughing, I suppose. If Jesus says that he will never leave us, that he will always be with us, then even if every person that we've known and loved were to abandon us, Jesus would still be by our sides. Jesus will come again. He will keep his promises, just as he has said. Zechariah speaks of the context of this rescue. He then speaks of its purpose. For rescue, just, just pure redemption, being brought back, isn't the end goal of God's purposes. Imagine someone gives you a John Lewis voucher tomorrow. Uh, you redeem it online, you get yourself a new coffee machine, and you pop it on the kitchen worktop at home, and you enjoy looking at it. 
but you never use it. What would be the point? What would be the point of having redeemed that gift card? There would be no point at all. Redemption isn't the end goal. It's a necessary step, but it's not the end goal of God's purposes with and for us. And Zechariah knows that well. At verse 74, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We've been saved, as Zechariah understands it, so that we might serve. Now service can get a bit of a bad rep. Uh, Nobody would particularly want to be a servant. We think perhaps of the service industry. We think of uh, mopping tables, scrubbing toilets, taking abuse from customers. We think of someone who commits themselves to public service, uh, a loyal, dutiful, perhaps not particularly happy individual. Service gets a bad rep. But service of God, says the Bible, is a wonderful thing. It's what we're made for. It's the story that the Bible has been telling since the beginning. Think of Adam and Eve, created to work in the garden, not just to veg out and relax. Think of the Exodus, God's people, not just rescued from slavery, from Egypt, from Pharaoh, but rescued for worship, for the promised land, for God. Let my people go so they may worship was Moses' message from God to Pharaoh. This has been the story the whole way along. We've been saved so that we might serve. True freedom, the Bible says, is not freedom from all constraints so that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want, with whoever we want, without a care or a commitment in the world. Who really would want a life like that? No. True freedom, the Bible says, is being set free to be what we were made to be. Free to know God, free to love God, free to serve God, just as he made us to do. Not in drudgery, but in delight. Zachariah qualifies in verse 74 and 75 what that service looks like. It is without fear. We serve God, not fearing persecution, oppression, humiliation, but boldly and confidently. We serve God in holiness and righteousness, not out of a sense of cold duty or obligation, not hypocritically or insincerely, but putting on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He writes Paul, using the same two words in Ephesians 4. And we serve God all our days. Not paying off a debt, not watching the clock run down, but enjoying doing for eternity what we were made to do. Free now, finally, to serve our God. And doesn't that fill our service with joy and wonder? Because it can so easily slip into feeling like drudgery serving God, can't it? Something we do because we must, because others aren't. 
But imagine the joy Zachariah must have felt when he took up his next shift serving as a priest in the temple after singing this song. Imagine the spring there must have been in his step as he did the work God had created and set him free to do, even if that was as humble as wiping the blood off the altar with the J-cloth and sweeping up the rubbish from the floor. Jesus has saved us that we might enjoy serving him for all eternity, just as he has created us to do. Why has he saved us? Was his workforce looking a little small? Was Jesus in need of more labor? No. Zechariah sings twice of God's motivation. The first one, verse 72. God did this to show mercy to our ancestors. It is because of mercy that God saved us. And mercy, I think, is one of the drum beats throughout this chapter. Dan pointed it out last week. Um, verse 50, Mary sings, his mercy extends to those who fear him. Verse 58, Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. Verse 78, later down in his song, Zechariah declares that it is because of the tender mercy of our God that this has happened. Mercy from deep within the gut, pouring out with an unstoppable wrench. God saved us through Jesus because he wanted to show us mercy. Because that's who he is, a merciful God. So first, Zechariah calls us with him to praise the God who sent salvation. Second, he calls us to serve the God who did what he said. Thirdly, he calls us to look to the God who is our rising sun. He calls us to look to the God who is our rising sun. In verses 76 to 79. And this final section of the song, where Zechariah moves from praise to prophecy, in which his gaze shifts from God to his son, John. In a sense, it doesn't add all that much. Quite a few of the themes we've already seen in the song so far. But I think there are two areas in which Zechariah's vision expands, where he, where we, see a little more clearly in these last few verses what God plans to do through Jesus. And I think the first is how and from what Jesus saves us. Because up till now, Zechariah's horn of salvation has been sounding pretty military. But in verse 76, Zechariah turns his attention to the baby John, who will be called a prophet of the Most High, who will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And how will John do this preparatory work? By scouting out the terrain, checking the strength of the defenses, by sticking pins on a map, writing up the battle plan, by engaging in some skirmishes to test the enemy's strength. No. Verse 77. This child will give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. John will be a prophet and a preacher, not a battle planner. He'll prepare the way for the Savior with words, words of the forgiveness that is to come. 
and John will let the people in on his secrets. The flexed bicep of the Savior will be seen not in the power of his sword, but in the power of his sacrifice. His victory will be seen not in his killing of his enemies, but in his enemies' killing of him. God's bicep of salvation will deal with his people's suffering, but bigger than that, better than that, he will deal with his people's sin. Forgiveness will be the prize he wins. And then the second thing, where I think we see the vision expand here, is that Jesus, the bicep of God's salvation, will be, verse 78, the rising sun, come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Jesus is not just the saviour of a moment, Christmas visitor who is gone after a few days, the one who swoops down, rescues the people, and then disappears. He's the light that has come to be with us, that will shine upon us and upon everything for all eternity, bringing us into the purity of his glow, warming us with the strength of his flame, and leading us by his piercing, pure beam. There will be no darkness as his light shines. Nothing will be able to put it out. The valley of the shadow of death will be dark no more. His light will shine and we will live by it. It will guide our feet into the path of peace, showing us a good, a better way to live. So look to him this Christmas and look to him beyond this Christmas. Look to him with and for your whole life. Look to the one who cares enough to come to you. Look to the one who brought you back with his blood and wields his sword with words of forgiveness. Look to the one who saves you from your suffering and from your sin and who transforms the whole world along with your soul. And look to the one who shines into every dark corner of your life and our world and brings light. Look to Jesus. Let's pause. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you for what Zechariah had seen, what he had heard, what he here sang of with such joy. Help us to praise you, the one who has sent salvation, to serve you who have done just what you said and to look to the rising sun who has come to give us light. Amen.